Coming up on Philosophy Talk. You talking to me? Neuroscience and the law. You talking to me? Can the chemistry of your brain make you do criminal acts? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Should the law be changed in response to the findings of neuroscience? How do the latest findings in neuroscience complicate the criminal justice system? I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax. I can't sleep cause my bed's on fire. Don't touch me, I'm a real live wire. Psycho killer, qu'est-ce see? Our guest is David Eagleman, director of the Laboratory for Perception and Action at the Baylor College of Medicine author of Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain. Neuroscience and the Law, coming up on Philosophy. You talking to me? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're broadcasting from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken and I are professors of philosophy when we're not on the radio. And today we're philosophizing about neuroscience and the law. Neuroscience, the study of the brain and how it works, is revolutionizing our understanding of how our mind works. In the process, it's challenging age-old ways of thinking about crime and punishment. Some neuroscientists even say that, in the light of their discoveries, it's time to completely rethink our judicial system. And that's because both common sense and our current legal system presuppose a certain picture of how the mind works that many neuroscientists now believe is almost entirely wrong, John. Well, common sense says that a person is morally responsible for a wrongful action only if the action results from their free, conscious, deliberate choice. Pretty much the same idea is expressed in the law with the concept of a guilty mind or a mens rea. Under the law, an act can't make you guilty unless your mind is guilty too. Well, John, let's, let's be precise here. The law actually distinguishes several different levels of criminal culpability. There is strict liability, negligence, recklessness, and even more. A wrongdoer doesn't actually have to make a free, conscious, deliberate choice to be culpable in these other weaker ways, you know. True enough, show off. But my point still stands, in spite of your erudition. The law differentiates between actions we freely choose and actions that we don't choose. The law holds us most responsible and punishes us most severely for actions of that first kind. And this is where modern neuroscience comes into the picture, to throw cold water on the idea that we freely choose any of our actions. And neuroscience also teaches us that most of what the brain does to cause behavior actually happens without the benefit of conscious deliberation at all. Conscious deliberation is at best a small, tiny, tiny tip of a huge iceberg. But look, all the law really needs is a distinction between doing something on purpose, in full awareness of the consequences of action, and doing something out of mm -hmm. ignorance or doing something because your brain circuitry is misfiring in ways beyond your control. Think of the difference between you, let's, uh, for the sake of argument, say a relatively normal person with an intact brain, and say a paranoid schizophrenic. 
Surely neuroscience doesn't show that as far as the law is concerned. We all might as well be paranoid schizophrenics. No, that's true, John. That's true. But, but neuroscience, what it does do is refuse to draw sharp lines. It sees it all in a continuum. Look, take your supposedly normal law-abiding citizen. Upset their dopamine or serotonin balance just a teeny bit. Or make a tiny lesion in, in just the right place in the neural circuitry. And presto change you know what you've done? You've turned your upstanding law-abiding citizen into a vicious criminal, just like that. Boom. Are you suggesting that all criminal behavior is the result of bad neural chemistry and circuitry and is, therefore, excusable? Well, look, all human behavior, every single bit of it, is the result of our neural chemistry and circuitry. That wasn't my point. My point was that relatively small differences in our brain can make huge differences in our behavior. Unfortunately for us, we don't have much direct conscious control over our neurochemistry and circuitry. So we have far less direct conscious control over our behavior than the law imagines. But, you know, I, I don't think it follows from that alone that we should necessarily excuse criminal behavior. Well, if you don't want to excuse criminal behavior, what exactly do you want to do about it? Well, what do we do with other bad outcomes caused by chemical imbalances or bad wiring? We treat them with medication or therapy or surgery. And, you know, John, one day soon we'll be able to do the same when bad chemistry leads to someone to perform uh, criminal actions. So instead of punishing criminals and sending them to prison, in your brave new world we should treat them. Well, I'm not, well, it is a brave new world, but I'm not ruling out punishment uh, altogether. I mean, punishment provides negative feedback. The brain sometimes changes itself in response to such feedback. But you know what I bet? I bet you that neuroscience can help us learn which forms of punishment provide effective feedback and, and which don't. Uh, you've drunk the Kool-Aid, Ken. But there's a lot of questions we need to address before I'm even willing to sip from the cup. But John, but it tastes so good. What's holding you back, my friend? Well, I think everything you've been saying presupposes a philosophically problematic, I mean, maybe even naive, idea of freedom. What philosophers call contracausal freedom. That's a kind of absolute and total freedom that our will is supposed to have. Uh, so it, it doesn't depend on the brain and it just chooses our actions entirely and exclusively by itself. We don't have freedom like that. And, and maybe, if that's not obvious, neuroscience can help us see that. But neither common sense nor our legal system, in my humble opinion, assumes that we have such contra-causal free will. So, you know, you're raising a big, complicated philosophical question, John. I don't deny that. And it's one we really, really need to dig into. And to help set the stage for further explorations, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to learn more about a dramatic case where a problem in his brain leads one man to commit a terrible crime. What if I told you a middle-aged man had made sexual advances toward his underage stepdaughter? What would you say? I think I'd be disgusted. My initial reaction would be for the concern and safety of the, the child. I think that he should be at least treated and probably punished, probably imprisoned. Isn't there a law against that? There is a law against that. And here's the story of a man we'll call Patient X. He was an educated man who had uh, performed a number of interesting jobs, including police officer and school teacher. Russell Swordlow is a neuroscientist at the University of Kansas. Patient X was in his early 40s. He complained of headaches, had suicidal tendencies, balance issues, and he was suffering from a sudden onset of pedophilia. X had no criminal record, no history of pedophilia. 
but recently he'd been making subtle sexual advances toward his prepubescent stepdaughter. Soon his wife found out and turned up a trove of child pornography. He was convicted of child molestation, prescribed medication, and ordered into a 12-step rehab program for sex addicts. But he was quickly expelled from the program for soliciting sexual favors from other clients and staff. He described it as basically the brakes were just off his behavior. He knew, um, he knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. Yet he couldn't uh, stop himself. Swordlow met patient X the day before he was to begin a prison sentence. And when we evaluated him, you know, the interaction was uh, was unusual and suggested that perhaps there was um, something neurological. He didn't seem particularly distressed by the fact that he was going to be discharged to the prison. He was kind of jovial, and um, he was laying there in the bed. He uh, was wearing a pair of sweatpants, and it was clear that he had urinated on himself. He didn't seem particularly concerned about that. So Swordlow ordered an MRI. You know, I wasn't surprised to find an abnormality affecting the right frontal lobe, but I was surprised by the size of the lesion that was there. So I would say it was uh, maybe the size of a lemon. And it was pressing on an area of the right frontal lobe called the orbitofrontal cortex. Damage to the orbitofrontal cortex for some time has been recognized to result in and associate with um, impulsive and antisocial behavior. Patient X was transferred to a team of neurosurgeons who removed the tumor, and he got better. A judge decided that his tumor may have contributed to his pedophilia and gave him another chance to complete the rehab program, which he did successfully. Patient X avoided jail, and after seven months, he returned to his wife and stepdaughter. But then, a year later, his problems started again. He had started hoarding pornography. The brain tumor was back, this time about the size of a ping-pong ball. The second tumor was removed, and this time, the part of his skull where the tumor had grown was radiated so it wouldn't return. Swordlow kept in touch with him for several years and says patient X was living normally in society. This was clearly a case where prison wasn't going to fix this man. A neurosurgeon was. But the question remains, is patient X still responsible for his pedophilia? Should he be punished? I think that he should receive some kind of punishment, some sort of treatment, I guess. I mean, how do we know that the lemon-sized tumor really did cause him to sexually abuse his daughter. Being confined and pulled away from society is not the kind of, not necessarily the kind of action that would change his behavior in the future. I mean, I feel bad for the guy more than anything else. His actions are bad, his actions are reprehensible, but I don't think um, he himself is necessarily a bad person. Dr. Swordlow says the law considers a person's sanity and whether or not he knows the difference between right and wrong. There's also a group of people that know the difference between right from wrong but can't act on that knowledge. And I guess part of the challenge is where you draw the line between how able or unable do you have to be to act on that knowledge before it becomes a mitigating factor. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.